This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, the business station. My name is Rich Bradbury. This is Matt Splained. Electric cars are the future. With governments around the world legislating the petrol engine out of existence, electric cars look set to dominate the cities of tomorrow. Strangely, 120 years ago, electric cars were the future too. People get very scared when they hear the word history on a tech show, Matt. Hey, Rich. Well, you know, a few weeks ago we did a show on flying cars because, you know, everyone wants to talk about flying cars all of the time. Uh, But then, you know, I kind of realised that automotive innovation, on the whole, it's not something that we sort of cover a lot on the show. And I think that's partly because Malaysia is a bit behind the curve uh, when it comes to the development of infrastructure for things like uh, electric cars. And this was brought home again when we talked about uh, Volta, an Australian battery technology startup on one of the uh, Sciences Slick episodes again a few weeks ago. Because Australia is also behind the curve when it comes to the adoption of electric cars. So this certainly isn't a uniquely Malaysian phenomenon. But as a result, electric cars are not on our radar in the same way as they are in many other countries. Do you mean that literally? Well, it was an unintended pun, to be honest, but that's kind of the point. Electric cars are not an everyday sight for us here in Malaysia. I mean, right now, cars in general are not an everyday sight for many of us. Uh, uh, When I was driving out to buy some uh, food for my cat uh, from the vet the other day, I realised that I hadn't actually been out in my car and onto a road in nearly two weeks. In fact, the last time I'd gone out was just to get my second vaccination shot. So while there are companies that are pushing hybrid and electric car technology in in Malaysia, uh, companies like Toyota and Nissan, Volvo, Mercedes, BMW, plenty of other manufacturers as well, But cars with electric-only drivetrains are just not that common here. There's a lot more hybrids. And we certainly don't have that far-reaching network like Tesla does with charging stations up and down the country. And as far as I know, you still can't officially purchase a Tesla in Malaysia. Right. Uh, Other than the fact that we're a little bit behind when it comes to electric or alternative uh, fuel cars, Matt, what's the uh, focus of today's show? Well, and this is where the history part comes in, and that's why there are parallels to the flying car story, because we make the same assumption with electric cars that we make with flying cars, that the technology is very new, it's very much of the moment, and that for some reason, electric cars weren't actually possible until very recently. You know, it's a sudden acquisition of technology that's given us this ability to to suddenly make them more popular, when the reality is... We've been making flying cars for nearly 100 years. And with electric cars, it's a story that goes back even further. We've actually been making electric cars and other electric vehicles for much, much longer than that. So when I checked the Wikipedia page for dates for this, because, you know, I'm an expert at research, it seems that the first small-scale electric vehicles, uh, basically just models, were made in the early part of the 19th century. 
So the history of the electric car stretches back almost 200 years. I know that's a pretty amazing thing to think about. You know, when you look at a Tesla, you don't think that there's 200 years of history and development behind it. You imagine Elon Musk carved it out with an earbud one morning in front of the bathroom (laughs) mirror. But, you know, as I said, those early electric carriages, and they were carriages rather than cars, were just models. It was only with the invention of lead-acid batteries, uh, batteries that could be recharged, and that was in the 1880s, that we could really start to think about full-size passenger-carrying electric vehicles. Who the actual inventor is? Well, you know, this is another one of those things where lots of different people claimed to have been the original inventor of something, and the lines do get a little bit blurred. Because around this time, we were starting to see a lot of electrified vehicles. We were seeing tram networks, train lines. Uh, I think the London Underground, or at least certain lines on it, was electrified around 1900. Electric trains were being used at the same time in coal mines. Um, That was actually one of the first uses for them, because unlike uh, combustion engines, they didn't consume oxygen. So they were of less risk to the workers in the mine. I mean, I I get that you're saying we had the technology in a theoretical sense. Is that the same as saying that there's 200 years of history here? Well, of course, you know, you have to contextualise this information. You know, people have been saying Leonardo da Vinci invented the helicopter and the tank and the Mm. microwave oven. uh, But obviously he didn't. Or that Nikolai Tesla invented iPads and the App Store, except... You know, he didn't. But the history of electric cars isn't a steampunk extrapolation. Like a lot of the information uh, and, of course, the inspiration for today's show, uh, it it came from an extract for a forthcoming book by technology historian and current deputy editor of The Economist, Tom Standage. Uh, That book is called A Brief History of Motion. I think it's out on the 18th of August. And it's definitely already on my pre-order list. But I knew bits and pieces about early electric vehicles, but it wasn't something I'd explored in any great detail. And unlike the flying cars, which we've gone back to numerous times, the history of electric vehicles wasn't really something that anyone was, you know, asking about or clamouring for. And I think that's definitely an oversight on my part. Well, because of the role they're likely to play in our future? Well, partly, but it's also to do with the nature of innovation itself and which technologies win out during those head-to-head battles. So our benchmark for that used to be 8-track and cassette tapes. And then as time moved on, it was VHS and Betamax. Then it became Apple versus PC. But of course, you know, there are whole generations of listeners who have no idea what any of those things mean. I mean, they might know the Apple and the PC, but they don't know about the battle between the two companies in the the 80s. Mm. So then the reference point becomes BlackBerry versus iPhone. But very soon there'll be a generation that BlackBerry means nothing to either. So it's actually part of that bigger picture or history about the development of personalised motor transport. I had no idea, for example, that during the early year of uh, motoring, early years rather of motoring, electric cars were the biggest sellers. Or that in 1897, the best-selling car in the US was an electric vehicle, the Pope Manufacturing Company's Columbia Motor Carriage. But the biggest shock for me that the runner-up that year in sales was actually was steam-powered motor cars, <laughs> and apparently in 1900 
there were more steam-powered vehicles sold than either electric or petrol. Petrol cars only took the lead for the first time in 1903. So what is that bigger picture of the history of cars? Well, we just imagine that somebody came up with the idea of a motor carriage that didn't need horses. Of course, you know, we already had trains and trams, largely steam. We had steam-powered ships, of course. They were transforming international trade, often backed up by naval power. We'd entered the shameful era of gunboat diplomacy where naval forces would turn up and the merchant ships would be filled up with whatever the uh, more powerful nation demanded they be filled up with. But we also had growing environmental crises in many cities, especially in countries that were industrialized. And this is one of the great ironies of the story of cars. We talk about an electric future of cars because of the environmental impact of all of those carbon fuel burning combustion engines. Well, and the car was somehow seen as an environmental fix. I know it sounds really strange to say, but yes, you know, all of that improved trade, uh, the rail and shipping links, it was hugely increasing the numbers of horses in cities. Big cities like New York, London and Paris were home to hundreds of thousands of horses at any given time because the machines may have been bringing the goods to the ports, to the outskirts of those cities or even to distribution hubs within it. But distribution within those urban conurbations relied on the horse and carriage. And the more those economies boomed, the more trade increased. And the more people also moved to those trade centres, the more horses were needed to fill that role for that last mile infrastructure. You know, we're all quite used to talking about uh, CO2 emissions uh, for cars now. In fact, you know, it's part of the conversation that we have when we're uh, buying a car. Mm. But we're probably not as well versed when it comes to, well, horse emissions. Yeah, and uh, apparently uh, each horse produces something like 10 kilos of manure a day and about a litre of urine. So horse was... Horses were creating an environmental crisis. There were piles of manure on city streets that could be two or three metres high. Uh, I tried to find a reference to something I read a few years ago. It was a story about the collapse of a huge mound of horse manure on a London street that buried and killed passers-by, but I couldn't find it, so it might be something that's apocryphal. But certainly there were quality of life issues. In wet weather, pedestrians would be splashed with a mixture of horse dung and mud every time a carriage passed. And it wasn't just the manure. You know, horses were working animals and they weren't always well treated or cared for. Often the sick, the injured or dying horses were simply left in the street where they fell. And it might be days before that body was collected. You know, you couple that to the general public hygiene levels at the time. Most Western cities didn't have reliable, clean drinking water, for example. So it brings you to that further irony that to get rid of all of the manure that the horses created, you needed even more horses. So creating manure as they told, towed the old stuff away. So cars didn't just pop into existence in like a idyllic pastoral world. Uh, horses were a problem that people looked to technology to fix. 
Yeah, and it wasn't just an environmental problem, it was an economic problem as well. Human populations throughout that period were rapidly increasing as well. But the horse populations were increasing a lot more rapidly because they were meeting the demands of those increasing human populations. So that, of course, put pressure on food stocks. According to Standage's article, uh, a third of the crops grown in the US in the kind of uh, late 19th and early, early 20th centuries went to feed horses. In the UK, most of the hay and feed had to be imported. Obviously, Britain had an empire. So if you read some of the more economically minded historians, a contributing factor to the fall of Hitler's Germany was the fact that Germany's military relied on horses throughout the Second World War, whereas uh, the Allied armies were largely mechanised. So that when the Nazis invaded countries like the USSR, they not only had extended supply lines over which they had to supply and feed their soldiers, but they also had to supply and feed the millions of horses that moved the soldiers and their equipment to those places in the first place. There was an awareness that we were dangerously reliant on a single species of animal. Well, look, I mean... It might not have been the water cooler topic uh, of the day, but people were aware. And an outbreak of equine flu in the US in the early 1870s brought commerce in the country to a halt for a few weeks. It was like COVID, but it wasn't the people that were getting sick. So motor cars, whether they were steam or petrol or electric, were an innovation that didn't just happen. It was an innovation that was needed to address various crises brought about by our dependence on horses. Ah, when we come back then, the 19th century electric speed kings, here on Matt's Plane on BFM 89.9. Break from monotony, BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. My name is Rich Bradbury. This is Matt Splained. Welcome back. Um, we're looking at the exciting future of electric-powered motoring from the perspective of a Victorian gentleman today. On any other show, that would be weird. Before the break, we mentioned speed. Yeah, you know, much as we see uh, this incredible supercar-like performance from electric cars today, it was a French electric car that was the first to break the 100 kilometer an hour barrier back in 1899. From the 1890s through to about 1920, the future looked really good for electric cars. You know, we think about the supremacy of petrol engines as being something that was inevitable, but at that point, it didn't seem that way. There were concerns about oil's availability, there were concerns about how long those oil supplies would last. And of course, this was before the massive discovery and extraction of oil deposits in the US and around the world. But coal-fired power stations were enabling cities to rapidly electrify. And that easy availability of coal made both steam and electric-powered cars look much more attractive than petrol was in those early years. Of course, this was also before the mass production of cars, so the idea of private ownership of these vehicles was something that was limited to just a very few rich people. 
But two, two early pioneers who sought to make electric cars more available uh, were Pedro Salam and Henry Morris. They invented a vehicle that was uh, called, I love this name, the Electrobat, which was a, a taxi that was popular in uh, cities like New York. They had a, a dozen taxis operating in Manhattan. And during that scheme, they completed more than a thousand passenger journeys just in that first month of operation. Uh, what about recharging, though? You know, batteries can't have been efficient uh, and they must have taken a long time to charge back then. Yeah, of course, that was an enormous issue. So the pair merged with another company called the Electric Battery Company. As you do, uh, you can see where yeah, you can see where the the name Acme came up with in the in the cartoons. Uh, so the batteries were simply swapped out. So instead of being off the road for hours, drivers would drop by the depot and have a fresh battery loaded into the car in just minutes. And that's where we see history really starting to repeat itself. When I first started doing technology shows for BFM, I remember talking about a pioneering electric car company called Better Place, which ended up partnering with Renault. And their idea was that you would own the electric car, but lease the battery from Better Place. So you'd buy a Renault, and then you'd lease your battery from this other company. And that meant you could drop by any Better Place charging station and swap out a depleted battery for a, a full one. The company did some pilot projects. They built model infrastructure, I think, in Israel, and they did some pilot schemes in California as well, I think. But it didn't take off, and the company went bankrupt in 2013. But Better Place's pioneering idea was 110 years old. So why have we lost this history of electric cars? Well, this part of uh, Standage's piece uh, is, I think, the part that I found most interesting. It's not a conspiracy theory. It's just simply like the war between Betamax and VHS. A format wins, and the other formats, in this case electric and steam, are the ones that lose. So you had the fact that big parts of the industry were behind petrol, and at the same time, all these oil deposits were being found. So there was this potential to create a profitable infrastructure, the network of petrol or gas stations that we see across the country, and is still a model that we depend on today. But it was also about marketing mistakes and simple poor business practices by some of the electric car manufacturers. Electric cars, for some reason, became viewed as a woman's car. And bizarrely, one of the reasons for that, at least a reason that Standage states, is because the cars were simple and reliable. <laughs> so delicate. I, I know. I mean, simple and reliable is exactly what we want from a car yeah. today. But the idea was back then that delicate ladies wouldn't have to wrestle with dirty, complicated mechanics. And when you look at the engine of a, a contemporary electric car, it is surprising how simple it is and how small it is compared to a petrol engine. I mean, I, I understand the reliability issue, but why else would electric cars be thought of as women's cars? Well, I think this is where Standage conjectures a little bit, but he does mention the limited range of electric cars. Obviously, that was a structural issue. It was typically around 30 kilometres at that time. And he conjectures that that might have been attractive to some men who wanted to limit the independence 
of their wives and or daughters because they could never go further than 30 kilometers. He makes a point of noting that uh, Henry Ford bought his own wife an electric car rather than giving her one of his Model Ts. And this focus also led the industry to do some really odd things uh, based around, you know, very backwards notions of what these marketers thought women would want. So some cars had a tiller like a boat instead of a, a steering wheel, presumably because someone thought that the wheel was too complicated for women to figure out, so they gave them a stick instead. Uh, and this, of course, made the cars more dangerous. It made them harder to manoeuvre. Uh, and similarly, because women love to talk so much, as the thinking back then went, there was even a model that had a passenger seat in front of and facing the driver. Well, like blocking the driver's view. Yeah, again, you know, you're adding engineering quirks that make the cars less safe, make them less usable, and make them less good. So the electric car industry was really not doing a great job of promoting itself. The same with the Electrobats and that electric taxi company in New York. The company was the early 20th century equivalent of a hot startup. But like a lot of startups, it had funding issues and eventually it got into trouble after obtaining loans with slightly dodgy paperwork. So its share value crashed and its investors jumped ship. But just to give you an idea of how different history might have been, Standage also points out that Henry Ford went into partnership with Thomas Edison to try and create an electric car. But Edison had problems perfecting the battery technology and the project was eventually abandoned. But imagine how different that history might have been. Imagine if all those mass-produced Model Ts had been powered by batteries instead of petrol. You know, where would we be with battery technology today? And what would the world look like? Because it was Ford's mass production, it was the lowering of the cost of cars to make it affordable to ordinary people. It was that democratisation of personal travel that arguably shaped 20th century America and, by consequence, much of the rest of the world. That image of the open road. Yeah, you know, it's so easy for us to forget or not to, it's not even forget, we never knew that in the age of the horse, road travel was slow and dangerous. So we come back to marketing. With petrol, you could travel a lot further, especially once the cars became a lot more reliable because, you know, you can just fill them up again with petrol. So highways sprang up, linking towns and cities and states. Cars became symbols of freedom because up until then, adventure and exploration had been limited to the rich. Now it was something that, you know, ordinary people could do. The car was the equivalent of AirAsia's Now Everyone Can Fly slogan. So that idea of being limited to 30 kilometres at a time, as you were with the electric cars at the time, it didn't fit into that vision of what the world was becoming. And it doesn't matter that, as studies show still today, most people drive fewer than 30 kilometres a day. So an electric car, even then, would probably have fit their needs very nicely. But the mass production and the marketing money went over to petrol, and the rest, as they say, is history. Until history repeats itself and we find ourselves looking at electric cars as the solution to another environmental problem. 
Yeah, you know, uh, as we've pointed out, and it's something that Standage points out too, you have to be careful what kind of technological uh, fix you wish for. You solve one problem and open the door to another. For example, how green are electric cars? Of course, metals like lithium and cobalt for the batteries, they still have to be mined. Often they're mined in countries where paying conditions for miners are not great. They might even be downright abusive and slave-like. Of course, there are also concentration and distribution issues. Uh, we saw uh, separate international oil shocks in the 1970s with the OPEC oil crises and uh, the Iranian revolution. So there's the issue of whether we're replicating those weaknesses with, with a, a, a new technology. Yeah, because how many countries are the rare earth metals that the batteries rely on actually found in? And yes, I know the rare doesn't mean that they're physically rare, but they're not geographically well distributed like iron ore is. Additionally, uh, many of the rare earth processing facilities, as well as the battery manufacturing plants, are located in China. And, you know, I'm not inferring that China has any negative intentions, but it's simply about the distribution of that structure. We're planning our future around this technology, but sometimes it doesn't look as though it's very well planned. All right, then. So if the future isn't electric, um, what is it? Well, it's not really about whether it's electric or it's nuclear or it's wave-powered. It's more about what transport is and what it becomes in the future. You know, do we all go electric so that Virgin Galactic can use up all our carbon credits taking tourists into low Earth orbit? So what do we achieve, for example, if we swap a petrol car for an electric one just so that one person can drive to the shops on their own? Obviously, electric is better than petrol and diesel, but it's the entire transport mix that needs rethinking. It's about enhancing public transport models. You know, it doesn't matter if they're flying buses or monorails or whatever. It's about better ride sharing. Because as cheap as ride shares are and as little as the drivers make, by and large, it's still more expensive than owning a car unless you really are doing a small number of short journeys. So making those ride shares really cost and income effective may mean that step to driverless vehicles. So uh, it, it's really about the shape of the places we live. Yeah, because we focus too much on quick, simple solutions. And thinking that the future is either petrol or electric is one of those, you know, mistaken solutions. We have to zoom back out. We have to look at our cities, our homes, our communities. We have to reduce the distances that we travel every day, whether it's to work or to shop, whether it's to find other amenities. You know, the work from home experience over the last year has shown people that you don't have to clock into an office nine to five, five days a week. But it's also shown us that it isn't healthy to be home alone 24-7 either. So we have to think hard about creating those 10 or 15 minute cities where pretty much everything you need is within a 10 or 15 minute walk from your house. Whether it's a co-share office that connects you to workmates, a pharmacy or a clinic, sports and recreational facilities and shops, or to those transport links if you have to go further. And we have to extend that 21st century infrastructure, whether it's 
IT and communications technology or public transport to the people who don't live in urban centres. And that's where we start to look at an integrated world that goes beyond the notion of the Internet of Things and becomes an Internet of Motion. Thanks very much for that, Matt. Thank you. It's nice to talk about the past. Indeed. You can find Matt on Instagram and Twitter at CultureMatt. You can also head over to culturepop.com for transcripts of these shows and information about CulturePop and its consulting services. For BFM 89.9, my name is Rich Bradbury. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.